Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. What do you get if you combine the world's most important financial market, hedge funds, enormous leverage, and doom loop dynamics? Oh, that's the basis trade, baby. I want to know what risks lurk behind the treasury market and why regulators are sounding the alarm. And in today's dumb question of the week, what is the difference between duration and maturity? All right, let's get into it. So if you're obsessed by financial news, as I unfortunately am, and you regularly browse the FT or Bloomberg or any of these other news sources, you won't have missed the sort of minor panic that's going on about the scale of something called the treasury basis trade at the moment. Now, I don't know a lot about this, but I know someone who probably does. (laughs) But Romin, why is everyone so afraid of a basis trade? I'm not sure everyone's scared of it. I think it's something that's been around for ages. I mean, it's not something that's particularly exciting. It's just during crisis periods when it becomes a little bit more scary because it causes dislocations in the treasury market, which is not a good place to have dislocations. So what is it then? What is this basis trade? Well, it's one of my favourite things. It's an arbitrage trade where you've got two things which are essentially identical, where the price should be the same. So it's a theoretically very low risk trade to bring two things back into line with each other. So what are the two things here that should be the same in price? One is the cash bond. So this is a US treasury, say a 10 year treasury. Bog standard, something any of us might buy. Yep, this is your bog standard US 10 year treasury. But then on the other side, you've got something which is a derivative. And that's an agreement to sell a bond at a fixed date in the future. Right. The same bond that we've bought on the first leg of this trade? Yeah. So it's deliverable into that contract is the way we'd phrase it. Okay. So if we're a hedge fund, we could say, oh, that treasury that I could buy today is one price. But then the price of selling this same treasury in, let's say, a year's time is very slightly higher. So I can monetize that difference. In theory, risk free. Yeah. With some bells and whistles. (laughs) Okay. There's always bells and whistles in the bond market, Robin. Oh, yeah. Do you want to talk about the bells and whistles? Of course I do, Michael. Okay. What are the bells and whistles here? Well, just as in the commodity market, if you have a futures contract, it's a really good way to discover the price of something. And that's because it standardizes it. You know when it's going to be delivered. You know where it's going to be delivered. You know the exact quality of the stuff that's going to be delivered. So if it's gold, it has to be pure. If it's oil, it has to have a certain viscosity. But treasuries aren't viscous or pure. Treasuries are treasuries, no? Well, you'd have thought so, but they have whistles and bells. They have a coupon, they have a maturity date, and it won't be exactly equal to, say, 10 years, if it's a 10-year future. Oh man, the trade doesn't work then. There's no way we can resolve this. So... What you do is you define this thing called a notional deliverable bond, and that has a coupon of 6%. Always 6%? Always 6%. So if your coupon's a little bit higher, then I'd expect the price of that to be a little bit higher. And if the maturity is a bit longer than 10 years, then I'd expect to be paid a little bit more as well. So we have something called a conversion factor that turns your non-10-year 6% bond into the notional bond. And then we can pretend it's standardised. Is there like a standard form you fill in which does all the maths for you? Bloomberg. 
<laughs> okay, so you don't have to worry, right? If you're a trader, it just turns all these bonds into the same bond. Yeah. So many fictions underlie our financial markets. But certain bonds are cheapest to deliver, and that often makes the price of that bond go funny. So, you know, if it becomes cheapest to deliver, a bond becomes very much in demand. Why would it be cheaper to deliver? If you don't know, I'll just leave it. I do know, but it's very complicated. (laughs) (laughs) So clearly there'll be a group of bonds which can be delivered on the expiry date of the futures contract. Now, some of them will have a price which is high, some of them have a price which is low, but all of them will be eligible. So you just choose the one which is going to be the cheapest to you. That one will be the cheapest to deliver. So this is just kind of fluctuations in the bond around the yield curve. Yeah, just natural fluctuations would mean that one eligible bond would be cheaper than another. Okay, but for all this conversion factor and cheapest to deliver stuff, essentially what we're saying is there's an arbitrage trade here. There's a treasury today which I can buy and then I can sell it risk-free on the expiry of this futures contract and pocket a very, very small profit, right? But hedge funds, Romin, are not interested in very, very small profits. So what's going on? And the answer, as always, is leverage. You can lever this puppy up and that's going to boost your profit, potentially, if everything goes well, which most of the time it does. So when you say leverage, are you saying that we're borrowing the money to buy the bond? Yeah, there's something called the repo market, where when you choose to buy a US treasury, you can immediately lend that treasury out, sell it effectively, and agree to buy it back the next day. And just carry on doing that every day. Effectively, that means that you're not having to pay for it. Seems like a lot of work, though. Every day I've got to go and sell and buy back this bond? Or is it kind of automated? You can have term repo. You can do it for a week at a time. But usually it's a short period, yeah. And so by doing this, you know, effectively buying that treasury with borrowed money, the hedge fund running this trade can take that very small profit and amplify it into a big profit. Exactly. And the purpose this serves in markets is to snap those two prices back into line with each other, just as any arbitrage trade does. If two things are the same, one is cheaper than the other, then you buy the cheap one, you sell the expensive one, and the two prices snap back into line with each other. Hooray for capitalism and markets. But who's on the other side of this trade then? Who's buying this futures contract and receiving the treasury in six months or a year or whenever the expiry date is? Well, you can do the trade either way. The one we've been talking about is the one in which the futures contract is expensive and the bond is cheap. You can work it the other way around. But the futures market is something that's very, very, very heavily used by anyone who wants exposure to interest rates. So let's say that you've got a portfolio which will lose money if interest rates rise. You can go short bonds in the bond futures market very easily to counteract that loss. So this is kind of being used to manage risk in a way by the counterparties here. Can be, or it could be people speculating that interest rates will rise or fall. So you can very easily bet on that in the futures market, which you can't in the cash bond market. It's pretty difficult to short a bond. Institutional investors can do that very easily, but for a lot of investors, it's not possible. Whereas the bond futures market makes it really easy to go long or short. And I guess the other thing is that the futures market and futures contracts are inherently leveraged, aren't they? You can get 
a lot of notional exposure to the bond market and interest rate moves with a small upfront cost. Unlike normal bonds, which are very capital intensive. So yeah, you don't have to put all of the money on the table as if you'd bought a bond. So instead of having to pay 100 to buy a bond today, you just pay a few dollars, say. And then as the prices fluctuate, you have to pay variation margin. You pay initial margin, then variation margin. And that's it. Very leveraged. So this trade is going on. And as I understand it, it's kind of integral to how the treasury market works now. And like when I first read about it, I thought, oh, this is just some niche thing. Hedge funds are running to profit from an arbitrage, as in all markets. But then I was surprised that the more I looked into it, this is kind of how the treasury market works now. Has been for a long time. This has been decades. The futures market for US treasuries is colossal. What I read was that there was a big change in the aftermath of 2008 in terms of who was providing liquidity in the treasury market. Before that, there was a lot of primary dealers, which are big banks that transact directly with the US treasury and kind of facilitate the trading for investors. Whereas that was kind of regulated away almost after 2008, or at least it was made very expensive for banks to do that. And who stepped in? The hedge funds and the high-speed traders with this basis trade, which is what provides a lot of the liquidity, I think. Yeah, I think that's a fair description. There's another issue here, which is that banks aren't allowed to have big balance sheets. And that means if they have lots of bonds on their books, then that reduces their profitability. So what they're desperate to do is not to have lots of inventory. So the treasury market has lost liquidity due to that because they're not allowed to carry the bonds. Imagine if Tesco or one of your local supermarkets wasn't allowed to have more than one can of beans on the shelf because regulators said that was too risky. Well, that's tricky, right? But that means there's less liquidity. So if there is another provider of liquidity, that's potentially a good thing. I mean, it sounds kind of harmless then. We've got this arbitrage trade, and the whole point of arbitrage is that it's risk-free, right? You're long and short the same thing and pocketing the difference. Why is this potentially dangerous? You've mentioned the word leverage, so I'm guessing it has something to do with that. Well, every financial crisis in the world, every blow-up has leverage somewhere. Whether it's crypto, whether it's the financial crisis, there'll be leverage somewhere hidden in the contracts. Definitely not hidden here. Yeah, in this case, not hidden at all. So the reason why that's a problem is that if there is a dislocation in markets, in other words, a very sharp price move due to a shock somewhere, then the loss taken by one of the counterparties can be huge and very rapid, sometimes so large that they won't be able to weather it. So this could cause a fund to go down. Now, there are various safety checks in place to ensure this doesn't happen, but they all assume some size move is reasonable. So when you get a move which isn't reasonable, things go badly wrong. Is this what we had at the start of the pandemic? I remember people saying the treasury market froze up and hedge funds were having to unwind their bets. Yeah, it was very, very scary because normally what happens is when people are scared, they run back to mummy. And mummy in this case is the US treasury market. But in this case, they were running away from mummy. They were running away from stocks. They were running away from treasuries. And treasury prices were tanking. This was the dash for cash, wasn't it? (laughs) Yes. People were literally flogging their US treasuries to raise cash, governments around the world. Cash was seen as the only safe thing. 
And in that kind of environment, the Fed was terrified because it knows that if the Treasury market seizes up, essentially that's the plumbing that makes all of the financial system work. And that's why they had to step in and do something. So they're a liquidity provider of last resort. So they stepped in and bought all the bonds, basically. Yep. So let's think through the mechanics of how the trade actually could go wrong based on the leverage. So we've said that these hedge funds are using the repo market and effectively having to roll their borrowing every day. So is it the case that if the borrowing cost spikes up a bit because, you know, their counterparties, the banks get nervous, then the very small profit they're making on each trade becomes a very small or a very big loss and they have to unwind it very quickly. And that's what causes further dislocations and that amplifies the volatility. Think about it from the viewpoint of the lender who's providing funding for the hedge fund to buy the bond. If you're the person lending money, what they give you effectively is a treasury. Now, usually that's very safe, so you're not particularly worried. But if the price of that treasury becomes very volatile, you might demand more collateral. Or alternatively, you could just ask for a higher interest rate. So that's why the rates spike on repo when the volatility increases. And as you say, that can stop the trade being profitable and it triggers lots of unwinds. And it sounds like the situations where this basis trade might go really wrong is when something else is going really wrong. So volatility spiked or borrowing costs have suddenly spiked or people are just not trusting the treasury market anymore. And then this just makes things a lot worse as the hedge funds are having to just suddenly start selling into a distressed market. Yeah, it's a standard storybook. You've got some external shock. It could be people running away from stocks. It could be some kind of political problem. It could be a physical disaster, although they quite rarely affect markets. Or it could be a pandemic. And from what I read, the leverage on these treasury basis trades is absolutely enormous. And that's partly because the hedge fund can kind of borrow on both sides of the trade. So they can use this repo market to borrow several times over to buy the treasuries. And as we mentioned, futures are leveraged. So they only have to put up a small amount of collateral on the futures contract. And I read in the FT that it's not uncommon to be levered up by more than 100 times on a trade of this size. <laughs> and that also causes a problem because often people talk about centralised counterparties or CCPs. Now, these are the futures exchanges where these futures are traded. Now, they're very careful, these centralised counterparties, to manage risk. So they force their participants to do this margining, where if the loss gets too big, they have to post margin and make good. So the losses never mount up more than a certain amount. But what some people argue is that these centralised counterparties are, as their name suggests, concentrating risks. And also, if the market's going wrong, they might suddenly start demanding more margin be posted versus these trades, which is another thing that could force hedge funds to start unwinding at the worst possible time. And then usually what happens is they sell the things that they can and you get spillage into other markets. This is a doom loop, right? Yeah. And if the Fed hadn't stepped in in March 2020, when everything was going wrong, I'm guessing the outcome would not have been good. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was in freefall. And treasuries, when treasuries are in freefall, you know things are really, really bad. And remember Warren Buffett saying he was scared. <laughs> <laughs> 
And he's, he's seen, seen everything. Before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't just March 2020. So there was a very small prelude of it in September 2019, I think, when again the Treasury market looked to be seizing up. And the Fed stepped in then as well. So they are very predictable. If they see a problem, they will step in. And the Bank of England does the same. Do you think there's a danger that that constant stepping in when things are going wrong can encourage bad behaviour or too much risk-taking in the Treasury market from these hedge funds? Is it kind of like a moral hazard? They know the Fed's going to come and bail them out if it's all going wrong, so they just go wild. Well, probably not, because they'll probably make a loss on the trade as a result of the unwind. It's not going to come out well for them. There's a pretty good chance that they'll make a big loss. So I think that risk will probably stop them from taking too much of a gamble. But why is everyone talking about this trade again now? The basis trade, I didn't hear about it since the start of the pandemic. And now it's all over the news again. So I guess what we see now is that yields are just more attractive. And if you want to go long the bond market, then lots of institutional investors are buying the bond futures. That's pushing up the price of the futures above where you'd expect them to be relative to the cash bonds. Plus, there's been lots of issuance of the cash bonds. So increasing the supply is going to push down the price. So maybe that's what's driving a wedge between the two. I think long story short, no pun intended, is that the basis trade is back and on a big scale, right? So by one measurement, which is the short positions hedge funds are taking in the futures market, that has just like blown out. And I think at the end of October, there was a record amount of net shorts against both the two-year and five-year future, which caused the Fed and the Bank of International Settlements and a few other institutions to go, we need to keep an eye on this right now because if the basis trade were to go wrong again, it's bigger than ever. And we're going to have to bail it out. That's the <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, the SEC, which is the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US, is proposing new rules that would start to constrain hedge funds activity here. So one of those rules that they're considering is to force anyone doing this type of trade to register as a dealer which means increased oversight and transparency in all their trading activity, which would be a big change. And they're also going to probably have to take less leverage because broker-dealers are not allowed to take too much risk. They're also seeking to push more of these treasury trades onto central clearinghouses, which, <laughs> what do you think about that, Robin? Wait, let's concentrate the risk a bit more. Yeah. <laughs> but at least they can see it there. Is that what they're thinking? Yeah, it's completely transparent. Literally, you can see every single trade, and usually they try to net them off against each other. Clearly, for every long, there's a short. That's always true. And also, they'll be very careful with the margining. So, you know, they will be careful about the risk control. But what do you think? Are the hedge funds happy about these changes? I'm guessing no. <laughs> the FT seems to have been doing a really good job of collecting outraged quotes from hedge fund managers. So what about this one? The market needs arbitrages. Without them, it's going to be more expensive for the government's issue paper and more expensive for pension funds to trade. There is a reason this ecosystem exists. So that was Philippe Jordan, the president of capital fund management in the FT. What do you think about his point? Is there a reason, a good reason, this basis trade is there? Yeah, like we said, it brings the two into line with each other. But if the bond future is slightly out of whack with the cash bond price, is that going to make people lose sleep at night? I don't think so. Well, another hedge fund executive in the FT says, if hedge funds stopped buying treasuries, I don't know who else would buy them. <laughs> is the world going to end? 
if the hedge funds stop buying the treasuries? The thing is, so many people need treasuries. Life insurers, pension funds, retail investors. And now that the yields are higher, I think people are queuing up to buy them. Okay, there's been lots of issuance, but I don't think the demand is going to dry up. So I don't agree with that at all. I think the point is that if the hedge funds weren't going and buying the treasuries and allowing everyone else to get exposure in the futures market, leveraged exposure with a small amount of capital up front, then those people in the futures market would have to step into the spot market and put up way more capital, which would pull it away from mortgages and corporate bonds and other assets. And that's exactly what Ken Griffin has said, who runs Citadel. Maybe, but I just think there are lots of cash buyers. Pension funds are real money guys. They're the ones who buy it with actual cash. And they're going to carry on doing that. Retail investors as well, mom and pop, you know, they're always going to step in to buy treasuries at a yield of, oh, I don't know, 6%. That would be crazy. And it would be great. I mean, they're talking their book, aren't they, the hedge fund guys? But I kind of feel they might have a point. It's regulation that forced out the primary dealers to a large extent. And now if regulation is going to push out the guys that stepped in to replace that function, kind of, surely you could have a bit of a vacuum there. You could do, you could. I mean, you know, this bond futures arbitrage, yeah, okay, it serves a purpose. But could we live in a world without bond futures? I think we probably could. We certainly did in the past. I mean, Ken Griffin, again, in the FT, kind of makes the point that the SEC is searching for a problem. If regulators are worried about the size of the basis trade, they can ask banks to conduct stress tests to see if they have enough collateral from their counterparties. Which, again, I think is kind of a good point. Maybe they're regulating the wrong guys. There's banks on the other side of this who are doing all the repo lending. Just make sure they're not allowing too much risk. But it's like someone going around lighting fires and saying, well, you should have doused your house with water before I went around lighting fires. (laughs) If you let me burn the house down, I will burn the house down. (laughs) But what do you think? Is this a big risk? I mean, I know it's gone wrong in the past and the Fed's kind of stepped in to bail it out. Do you worry about this as an underpinning for the most important financial market? I kind of hope it will go wrong, because if it does, it means yields are going to blow out and I'm going to be the buyer of last resort. I'm going to buy those treasuries. I'm going to buy those gilts at yields of six, seven, eight percent. Is that what would really happen, though, if this went wrong? Wouldn't it be that the Fed starts buying loads of bonds again and yields get crushed? Eventually, but I'd be in there. (laughs) I'm ready. You're ready to help out the Fed with your tiny bucket of water to put out the fire. Indeed. (laughs) Yeah, my pipette. Now that yields are higher for government bonds, there's more of an incentive to buy them. And we have lots of questions about that in our Pension Craft Slack channel. If you want to learn more about it, then why not consider joining us? Just go to our website, pensioncraft.com, to learn more. Okay, today's dumb question of the week comes from one of our listeners, Alistair, who says, What is the difference between duration and maturity? when it comes to bonds? Now, this is a great question and one that I think it's key to understand. So let's say we've got a 10-year bond and it's going to mature in exactly 10 years' time. So that's the maturity of the bond, 10 years. Duration is actually a risk measure and it's not exactly the same as the maturity date unless it's a zero coupon bond. So if you don't get any coupons, then the maturity is exactly equal to the duration. So what is the duration? It's actually the average time you get your money back. What? So let's say that you've got a massive coupon on your bond. What that actually means is that 
well before you reach the maturity date, you'll have made your money back, the initial investment in the bond. So that reduces your risk. And that's one of the reasons why duration is used as a, as a risk measure for bonds. So let's say we have a 20-year bond with a coupon of 10%, a high coupon. I guess that means in 10 years' time, we'd have got all our initial money back? Yeah. In fact, it would more than halve the duration. So what's duration actually telling you then, if it's a risk measure, you say? It's telling you, on average, how long you're locking in a fixed rate of interest, because that tells you how sensitive you are to yield curve movements. And that's why, to work out the change in price of a bond, you multiply the duration by the change in yield, because that tells you how much you're losing out or gaining every year. Okay, so if the duration of a bond is 10 years and its yield falls 1%, its price goes up 10%. 10%, yeah. It's not so bad, is it? <laughs> this no. bond math stuff. <laughs> of course, it's never that simple. No, I know. You need to use this whole Wolfram Alpha thing that confuses everyone. What is that you always send people on a sort of wild goose chase to? Oh, this is the bond calculator. So it does it exactly. It doesn't just use that duration approximation. And what does it allow you to see? So you can work out the exact yield to maturity given the price of the bond or vice versa. You can work out the price of the bond given the yield. So when I'm looking at a bond and thinking, oh, do I want to buy this bond? And I can see there's a maturity and a duration. What's going through my head or what should be going through my head? Well, this brings us back to the idea of standardization. So if you've got two bonds, slightly different maturity dates or very different maturity dates, different coupons, how do you compare them? Well, yield to maturity is a kind of standardized benchmark. Roughly, it's the return you'll get on your capital. And because it's annualized, it doesn't matter if the maturity is two years or three years, say. So is that the first thing I should be looking for when I'm looking at buying a bond? What's the yield to maturity? What's the yield to maturity if I buy it today and I don't let go of it, I just keep it until it matures, how much return will I get roughly from the income and the capital gain or loss? And how does the duration factor into your thinking? So the duration tells you how badly you'll sleep at night en route to maturity. Now, if you're the kind of person that can just ignore the volatility, you kind of don't care if you're holding to maturity what happens to the price of the bond. So therefore, you wouldn't care about duration that much? Yeah. If you hold to maturity, duration's kind of irrelevant. But if you don't, then it's very relevant because double the duration and you'll double the volatility of your bond. Wow, yeah. And these bonds which have lost 80% of their value are the 50-year bonds with crazy duration. 50-year? Forget that. 100-year Austrian government bond. That's the one. <laughs> Do you think that's the first ever <laughs> meme bond? We talk about meme stocks, but I think this Austrian bond is a meme bond. Well, the UK had issued those war bonds, so they had perpetual bonds before they were fashionable. Bonds are getting fashionable again, Romin. I know, it's great for me, I love it. Just look at our Dumb Questions email channel, it's all about bonds these days. <laughs> I feel so out of my depth. But anyway, how much more complicated does it get when we're looking at a bond fund? Because this is what the rest of Alistair's question is about. He says, I'm looking at this bond fund and it says, weighted average maturity of 25 years and effective duration of 16 years. So what's that? What's weighted average maturity and effective duration? So weighted average maturity is going to be the maturity of each bond in the fund weighted by the present value of each of those bonds. So the more valuable ones, which you've got more of, are going to affect the weighted average maturity, the WAM, 
more than ones which you don't hold much of. And do you also get weighted average yield to maturity? Yes. In fact, the weighted average yield of a bond fund is the yield to maturity of the bond fund. That's how you work out the yield to maturity for the fund. It's kind of meaningless, I think, for a bond fund because the contents are always changing and you don't hold to maturity. Yeah, the fund is actually perpetual, isn't it? That's right. Even if everything inside it has a maturity date. That's why so many people get confused by bond funds, I guess. And then the effective duration is the present value weighted duration of each of the bonds in the fund. We've got jargon on jargon here, but yeah, I get it. But what it lets you do, so let's say that the effective duration of the fund is, I don't know, 17 years in this case. Then you can say, well, if the yield curve moves up 1%, this thing will lose 17%. If the yield curve moves down 1%, it'll gain 17%. So it's a really simple multiplier that tells you the risk of the bond fund overall. And it works exactly the same as it does for a single bond. That's the beauty of it. Well, let's clear that up then. Everyone go out and buy your bonds now. That's not a recommendation. I would never recommend bonds, Roman. I'll leave that to you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Roman Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.